The book of Hebrews chapter 4. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we are glad that you're here and uh, glad that you uh, have uh, chosen to be uh, in, God, in God's house this morning and to worship. And uh, we uh, just hope that you feel welcomed while you're here. And we want you to know that you're welcome back at any time. As we continue uh, looking through the book of Hebrews, we are going to kind of come back this morning to a concept that we looked at um, kind of briefly when we were back in chapter 2. We were introduced there to the idea of Jesus as our high priest. And the writer of Hebrews comes back to that idea uh, in our text this morning. And he does so because of how pivotal this idea is to the Christian faith. Um, it may not be one that you have spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, but the fact of the matter is that it is, um, it's, it's one of the titles that is put on Christ, and it is one of those things that he did, one of those um, attributes that he took on that is so vital to our faith in him. And so this morning we're going to begin reading in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And I would invite you, if you would like to this morning, uh, to stand with me in reverence to God's word. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 14. The Bible says, since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You may be seated. If we go back and we begin to look at the Old Testament and we begin to look at the duties of the priests, we see that their responsibility was to stand before God in place of the people. And there was no priest more important for that duty than the high priest. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would, would prepare himself he would go into the temple and he would go to the innermost part of the temple, the place known as the Holy of Holies. And this small room was the place where the Ark of the Covenant that the people of God had carried into battle, the Ark of the Covenant that contained the Ten Commandments and contained the Rod of Aaron, this, this gold box known as the Mercy Seat of God, it sat year-round in this room. And this room was separated from everything else by this thick veil. And there was only one person in all of the nation who was qualified to go into that room, and he was only allowed to do so one time a year 
And so the high priest would pass through this veil. He would enter into this room. And he would begin by making sacrifices for himself. He would begin by sacrificing so that his sins would be removed. Once he had done so, he would make a sacrifice for the people. And he would take the blood of that sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on top of that gold box. Because the top of that gold box was known as the mercy seat. And it was the place in all of Israel where the presence of God, where the glory of God dwelt. And so the priest could go in, he could make a sacrifice for himself, and then he would make a sacrifice for the people so that God would forgive their sins and would look upon them with favor. And if his heart was right, and his sacrifice was done correctly, then the people would be forgiven. And he did this every year. It was required. If he did not do it every year, then the people would stand in opposition to God. But the people themselves could not go to God. They could not get there on their own. You didn't sit around at your house and think, okay, I'm going to have this relationship with God. I'm going to get God to forgive me. If you were going to do that, you had to go to this priest. You had to go to a priest who would make a sacrifice for you so that God would, after all of that, look favorably upon you. But of course, you, if you were one of them, and just like we are today, they left that place, they sinned again, and therefore it was still necessary that once again a priest would go and make a sacrifice for you. The people of God would sin throughout the year, and so it was necessary that on that day, a day that is still celebrated by the Jewish people today, On that day, the priest would have to go in and make another sacrifice for you. This priest was of the utmost importance because he sought out for the people forgiveness from God. And they definitely needed it. We definitely need it. We have definitely, most definitely done many, many things that are not pleasing to God. And we therefore desperately need his forgiveness And so the priest would go, and he would stand in their place, and he would plead with God on their behalf. He would take the life of an animal and ask that God forgive the people. This morning, I want us to look at the privileges and responsibilities of having a high priest. This is probably a concept that we as Baptists Um, we have a lot of struggles with. There are two reasons for that. One is because we don't have any priests. It's been very interesting the last few days as I have been in the hospital with my uncle, I've met a number of his friends, and it's very odd because every single one of them, not just one, but every single one of them, as I've begun to introduce myself and you know, I'm a minister, and they're like, oh, okay, that's good. And my aunt keeps joking that we need one in the family to keep everybody straight. In my family, we need like eight. And some of your families, you need more than that, so it's not too funny. But every single time, after I've rattled off, I'm a minister, I have six children. They've all looked at me and said, are you Catholic? Now, there's a problem with that. I would understand, are you Mormon? Okay, I get that one. There's a huge problem with asking if I am a Catholic priest. Catholic priests are not supposed to have children. And if they do have children, they can't claim them and continue to be Catholic priests. They don't get married, right? It shows you how little people know about the fates around them, I guess. But the Catholics still have priests. They still designate their ministers as priests. Why? Because they still see a need for somebody to stand in between you and God. If you're a good Catholic, you go to confession and you confess your sins to the priest. And then he is supposed to get you access to God. And so we as Baptists, we don't think a lot about priests because we don't have them. Or we also think about the fact that as Baptists, we believe in what is called the priesthood of the believer. 
which means that you don't need anybody to stand in between you and God. Well, I want us to understand that that needs a little tweaking this morning. Because there is still someone that stands in between us and God. There is still someone who stands there each and every day who we can confess our sins to, who we do pray to, and he goes to God on our behalf. And that's a little bit different. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. As we begin looking in verse 14, the writer of Hebrews here tells us to hold fast. He says, let us hold fast our confession." This theme of holding fast continues over from what we've been talking about over the last several weeks. Disbelief is rampant. It's rampant in our culture. It's rampant in our society. It's rampant in our churches. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us, he begs of us to hold fast to our confession. Hold fast to what we believe. The question is why? You know, we think about how. Sometimes we become a religion of how. How do I do that? I had a lady stop me one time after a sermon, and she said, Pastor, all of that is well and good, but you need to tell us how to do that. Well, the reason most pastors never get to how is because most people never comprehend why. We have to start with why. And that's what he does for us. There are two reasons that he gives here in these next two verses as to why we should hold fast to our confession. Why does it matter that we believe in Christ? Why does it matter that we go to church? Why does it matter that we believe that we have a high priest who we can turn to? Why does that matter? Well, look first, the beginning of verse 14. We have a priest who has passed through the heavens. This doesn't seem to be a very important statement. It's one that we could gloss over very quickly. But this is is the beginning of Jesus' role as high priest. See, just as the high priest each and every year would pass through these veils, these thick veils that they were to separate you from God. These thick veils were to keep everybody else out. Because nobody was worthy to go into God's presence. Nobody nobody could just do that. As he says there as we go into chapter 5, nobody even picked or desired to be the high priest. That was something God had to choose you for. Nobody wanted to do that job. Because if you go in there and your heart is not right and you begin making that sacrifice, God would strike you dead. It wasn't God would pat you on the back and say, you need to go say some Hail Marys. Or you need to do some community service. Or you need to read your Bible some more. God would kill you right there. So it's not really a job that everybody wanted to do. But Jesus, instead of passing through the veil that would give you earthly access to God's presence. Verse 14 says, since, we, since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus didn't go to the temple and walk into the Holy of Holies and walk past that veil and go into the place where the ark sat. He didn't didn't need that type of access to God. Rather, Jesus passes through the heavens and goes directly to where God is. He goes directly to God's throne. He passes by the earthly stuff. If you remember from the New Testament, we read that when Jesus died, that veil, it tore. From the top down, that veil ripped. Nobody did it. Nobody was there. It just it tore in two. Because then our access to God was no longer through that veil, that curtain that hung there in the temple. But our access to God came through Christ. So we have a priest, a high priest, who no longer has to enter into a physical place once a year. And that's a good thing, because if you got on a plane today and you flew to Jerusalem and you landed there and you went to try to find these things that are being talked about, they have long been knocked down. Conquering armies have destroyed the temple. Thieves have run off with the Ark of the Covenant. 
They destroyed it. They knocked it down. So we wouldn't have any access to God. We couldn't go find a high priest who is from the house of Aaron and have him to go in for us and make a sacrifice in this place because it's been destroyed. But Jesus dwells in a place that cannot be destroyed. We hold fast because we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens and gives us direct access to God. He went there. He went to be where God is. The Bible describes it as when Jesus ascended back into heaven, he went and sat at the right hand of the Father. God gave him that position of authority, and he sits there to talk to God for us. Not in a room in Jerusalem, but he sits in heaven. Secondly, why? Why should we hold fast? We have a priest who has passed through the heavens. Secondly here, we have a priest who can sympathize. Look in verses 15 and 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Every way tempted as we are. I was at church one time, and I just finished preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, about Jesus' death and resurrection. And I had a fellow come up to me afterwards, and he said, you know, this thing about Jesus dying, he said, it's not really that big a deal. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, God knew what he was going to do. God knew what was going to happen. He said, you know, it wasn't like it was that big a deal that he, that he died. Well, this fella, he was lost, and, and that was his biggest problem. But he, he failed to grasp that when, when God sent Jesus to live among us, when Jesus took on flesh... He took on many of the limitations that we have. He took on this humanly form, and by taking it on, he exposed himself to, to face the things that we face. And this passage hits at that because Jesus in heaven sitting with God is not facing the temptations that he faced when he came and dwelt among us. And to be our high priest, to be our king who died for us, he had to face those things. There are three temptations that are common to each person. 1 John 2.16 talks about this for us. John writes that there are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, Adam and Eve are tempted, and what are they tempted with? Well, they're tempted with a fruit that is good for food. It met the desires of their flesh. They're tempted with a fruit that looked nice. The Bible says that it was pleasing to their eyes, the delight of their eyes. It was one that would make one wise. It would make one know right and wrong and death and life and good and evil like God does. The devil appeared to their pride. The pride to say that they were better than God, that they knew better than God because he had told them not to eat that. And they failed. They had the three temptations and they failed. If you go to the New Testament and you go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, Jesus has been sent to the wilderness. And he spends 40 days there without eating. And Satan comes to him. And the first thing he says is, you can turn these stones into bread because you're hungry. He wanted Jesus to fall to the temptation to meet the desires of his flesh. Satan offers him the kingdoms of the world. He, he sets him and he shows him all of these things. They're things that if you look at them, were very pleasing. But Jesus rejects that temptation. And then he tells him, he says, why don't you throw yourself off the temple? He says, throw yourself off. The Bible says God will catch you. 
Well, Jesus knew that that was not what God had planned for him. He knew that that wasn't God's um, direction that he was sending him. That's not the way he was going to be. It's not the way he was going to die. And he was not going to tempt God in that way. Though Satan wanted him to give in to pride, the pride of his life, Jesus did not. These are three instances. I I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus was tempted throughout his entire ministry. There there are constant temptations for him to start his kingdom early. We look at when he walks into Jerusalem and all of the people are there and they're waving the branches and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's like a king entering into his city. But Jesus doesn't give in to that temptation. Matter of fact, he doesn't come in proudly riding some horse as a conquering king, but he he just takes a, a simple donkey and he, he gets on it and he rides it in. And it was a much more powerful statement because that's what the Old Testament had promised that the king would ride in on, but, but he humbles himself in that. See, Jesus has faced what we have faced. This thought that somehow because he was God, he came and he didn't have it hard. He didn't have anything to worry about is false. He has it much more difficult uh, than we do because we fail in our temptations. If Jesus had failed at any point in any of the temptations that he had before him, everything would have been erased. It would all have been gone. There would have been no hope of salvation. But he does not do so. He is tempted as we are, yet, as the end of verse 15 says, without sin. Therefore, we can draw near to the throne of grace. I kind of think about this a lot like we do with politicians a lot of times, right? Because you'll hear these guys that are like multimillionaires. Sorry if you're a multimillionaire. If you are a multimillionaire, if you could increase your giving, we would really appreciate that. And they say, you know, I'm for the little guy. Or the king, you know, who, who once, once a day will maybe ride among his people. As if that somehow lets him know about what they're going through. The people who talk about starving children or they talk about people all over the world with AIDS and yet they return to their multi-million dollar mansions and they never have to see any of it for themselves. That's not what God did. When he sent his son, he didn't send him to be born in a castle somewhere, protected from everything, never going through hardship. He was born in a manger and he says later in life that he does have, he has no place to lay his head. He has no home He has nothing. He dies in obscurity with nothing. Literally naked on a cross. He had nothing. So he's able then, as the high priest, to stand before God and sympathize with us. Because he knows what we're going through. He knows about our hardships. He knows about our heartache. Not because he has thought about what they would be like, but because he has experienced them himself. God has experienced the trials and tribulations that we go through. He's seen what they look like. He's felt them. And he knows what we're going through. Therefore, his grace is available to help us He says, let us then with confidence, verse 16, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, you think about the gods that people have worshipped throughout history. These gods that set up high on mountains and did not worry about the people down below. That is not our God. That is not who He is. When we draw near to Him, when we cry out to Him, He has experienced what we are going through. He can sympathize with us. He can give us help. Grace to help in time of need. Listen, we should hold fast to our confession. We should hold fast to who Jesus is. Because Jesus went through what we went through. He went through it and he did not falter. He did not sin. And he can sympathize with our pain. 
because he's experienced it himself. That's why. So hold fast. Let's look in beginning in verse 1. With the character of this priest. Why? What did a person have to be? What did a person have to do to stand in as priest? Does Jesus meet these standards? He says in verse 1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Jesus came to act on our behalf. His compassion is not false humility. The, passion, the compassion of the high priest was not false humility. When he walked into that room to make that sacrifice, he could not walk in with his chest puffed out and thinking he was a great person. He could not walk in thinking that he was better than the people that he was serving because he knew more than anybody else that he wasn't. He, above all, was going to see the ugliness of sin. As he went in and he killed that animal, he sprinkled the blood there on God's mercy seat. He saw firsthand the penalty of sin, the death that comes because we have disobeyed God, because we have betrayed God and turned our back on him. The high priest could see that personally. He could see that darkness. Jesus as high priest sees the same thing. Not only can he see the penalty of darkness as he sees the sacrifice that is made for sin, as he, he sees firsthand as he becomes the sacrifice, he can feel the penalty of sin. As he hangs on the cross, it is upon him, just as the priest would, would place the sin of the people on the head of that animal. Christ goes to the cross. He, he goes himself to the cross. He, as the priest goes and hangs himself on the cross, and there the sin of the world is placed upon him, not for a year not for a group of people just in the Middle East. But the sins of the world for eternity are placed upon His head. And there, as He acts on behalf of us, He offers the greatest gift and the greatest sacrifice for His sin, Himself. He offers Himself to die in our place. The high priest would act gently toward the ignorant and wayward. It's a pretty good description if you think about it. I mean, it's probably a really nice way to put it, actually, when you get down to it. He's talking about us, by the way, if you haven't picked up on that yet. He's calling us the ignorant and wayward. Some people don't know they're ignorant. Some people are wayward. They know and they don't do. They know what they're supposed to do and they fail to do it. And the high priest can go and he can act gently with them. Why? Because he, he understands. He himself is beset by weakness. You know, if Jesus had not come and lived the life that is common to man, lived the life facing the temptations, he would have went to the cross and he would have stood there and he would have thought, What's the big deal? He would have went through life and thought, why is it so hard for you people to listen to God? If he hadn't faced the temptations, if he hadn't saw the sin around him, if he hadn't suffered as we do, he would have stood there and thought, this is no big deal. Why can't you get this right? Why can't you just listen to God? I've done it. The Bible says that he was obedient in everything to God. He listened to God. He did what God wanted him to do. If he had not suffered as we do, if he had not been tempted as we do, he would have not understood what we're going through. But the high priest did. 
Because the high priest was called out from among men and he knew what they were going through. He could go into that holy place and as he made that sacrifice, he understood. He understood how hard it was. He understood the realities of sin. He saw the ugliness. And so he could sympathize and go into that room and care about those that he was sacrificing for. Jesus does that. He has taken the weakness of humanity upon himself. Now verse 3 says that because of this he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. This does not apply to Christ. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 7. But Jesus is not sinful, so he does not first offer a sacrifice for himself, but he goes straight to offering the sacrifice for the people. Verse 4 says that no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. Nobody wants this job. It's a terrible job. It's one of the reasons when we get to the New Testament, we see such a difference in what this is describing and how the high priests in the New Testament are described. They're a proud people. They're out for themselves, trying to do things for themselves. They don't care about the relationship with God. They want control over the people. It had become a political position. But here, when the high priest is functioning as he has been called to, he's appointed by God. So in verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus did not take this upon himself, but rather it was the calling of his heavenly father. Jesus would not have been so arrogant as to have raised his hand and volunteered to be high priest. But rather God sends his son. Jesus did not send himself, but God sends his son and says, go and save my people. Go and save those who are far from me. Go and save those who need redemption and forgiveness. God takes the title of high priest and he puts it on his son. From Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then in verse 6 from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is someone who you may have not heard a lot about and we're going to talk about in the weeks to come, but he appears very briefly in Genesis 14, 18. And Abram goes to him, or Abram meets him rather, and Abram, he's a priest, he's from the town of Salem where he is king. And Abram gives him a portion of his stuff. The Psalms pick up on this because Melchizedek is a priest and also a king. Not only a king, but he is the king of Salem, which later becomes Jerusalem. And so the Psalms pick up on this and they begin to talk about this fellow named Melchizedek who had no beginning or end. And he's a priest, and he's the king of Jerusalem. You begin to see how this is all working. Why he would call him a priest like Melchizedek. A guy who has no beginning or end. That sounds a lot like Jesus. A guy who is a priest. A high priest. That sounds a lot like Jesus. A guy who is the king of Jerusalem. A king who would rule over the throne of David forever. A throne that sat in Jerusalem. God takes this title of this obscure guy from Genesis 14 and he places it upon Christ. Because Christ is an eternal king who has no beginning or end and he doesn't only serve as king, but he serves as priest. Go and read in the Old Testament what happened when those kings tried to make themselves priests. It did not work out. One of the great sins that King Saul committed was making sacrifices when he was not authorized to do so. But it's not so with those who are of the order of Melchizedek. 
those who follow in that lineage, the one who has been appointed priest and appointed king. The character of the priest is one of humility who sympathizes with the people and makes sacrifices for them. So what does the sacrifice of the high priest look like? Look with me in verses 7 through 10. The great irony of Hebrews and maybe the great irony of the entire Bible is that the priest becomes the sacrifice. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. When he dwelt among us, he offered up prayers and supplications with, with loud cries and tears to take to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus humbles himself And because he humbles himself, he is heard by God. Though he is God's son, he learns obedience, verse 8 tells us. He learns obedience in his sufferings. And his obedience leads to a perfect salvation. We come to this this strange saying again that we saw back in chapter 2, and being made perfect... See, the interesting thing is that that's what Jesus lacked to be our salvation. is taking on human form, going through what we did, and dying for us. See, there are some throughout history, throughout the history of the church, who has tried to say that Jesus was just God and he only appeared to be a man. Friends, this tells us that if he had not taken on flesh, he could not have died for us. Because many of the religions of the world, you sit around and you talk to and worship a God that is far off. A God who knows nothing about you. Who knows nothing about what you have went through. Who knows nothing about your suffering and your experiences and your temptations. And what that does is it leaves people feeling empty. Because they worship this God over and over again. They bow down before Him and they they give Him praise and they give Him honor. And He cannot understand what they have went through. And that's what they end up feeling. Is that that He doesn't get me. My my God doesn't understand me. He He doesn't know who I am. He's way over there and I'm way over here. But it's not so with Christ. Because he took on flesh. He cried out to God. And although he was God's son, the son of God, he suffered and learned obedience. And therefore, the one who obeyed, in verse 8, Becomes the one who demands obedience in verse 9. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Salvation won by Christ's obedience is attained by our obedience. This is important because we have made it out to be this this thing where we, we pray a prayer and that's it. We're done. We're in. We're good. Yet we have Christ who obeyed God from from the beginning. He obeyed God and he was born in Bethlehem. We, We see that he obeyed God and he was baptized. Though, why would he need to be baptized? He had never sinned, but that's what God had called him to do. And he... He obeyed God and he ministered as God had told him to. And he he came to a garden in Gethsemane and he is is crying out to God and he he has seen what is ahead. He sees the suffering that is about to come. 
And he says, but I'm going to be obedient. Not my will be done. Thy will be done. And he's arrested and he's, he's tried. And in each and every moment, he is obedient. He doesn't stop. At no point does he turn around and go the other way. At no point does he call down 10,000 angels to save him from the cross. But he stays and he goes and he is obedient. So why would we think that we should be any less? Why would we think that we could get away with less? But he says here that is not how it works. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. God has called us to more than what we are doing. He has called us to more of a life than what we now have. We, we skip along through life like we're in the Wizard of Oz and it's some yellow brick road and everything is great and wonderful and we, we put on blinders like they do horses. You know, they want the horse to look straight and go straight. They don't want them to see what's going on around them. They don't want them to see the other horses or whatever else is happening. They want them to just... When our focus is forward on the cross, what it does is it makes us see everything around us. Not different directions to go in. But we see the lost... We see the hurting. We see those who are suffering. We're focused on Christ. We, we begin to see that, that our life is more than what we have made it. It's more than coming to a church service on Sunday morning. It's more than praying a prayer and getting wet in the back of a church and thinking that that is enough. He calls us here to obedience because He has been obedient. He offers up prayers and supplications for us. This is the God who has come out of heaven and died in our place. He becomes the perfect source. He's perfect because He is the one who has given us salvation. He's perfect in verse 10 because he's been designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the one who does all. He serves as our king. We don't need another one. He serves as our priest. We do not need another one. He serves as our sacrifice. We don't need another one. He serves as our prophet bringing us a word from God. We do not require another one. He is the all-encompassing one. And he calls us to obey him. I think it's interesting that in verse 7 he he says that he made these prayers and these cries and these offerings to to him who is able to save him from death do you realize that Jesus was perfectly obedient so he was going to the cross he was going to listen to God and he was going to the cross and there was nothing going to stop him. He was focused on it completely. But it doesn't say here Jesus is able to save himself. He says here that he made these prayers, he made these cries and gave these offerings and gifts to the one who was able to save him from death. At any moment, God could have pulled the plug on this deal. At any moment. At any moment, God could have decided it was not worth it. Nothing obligated him to send Christ. No one made him send his son to die for us. There's nothing we could have done to have earned that or to have gotten him to, to send Jesus to die. There's nothing we could have done. At any moment, God could have pulled the plug and said, this is not worth it. These people who I have made, who I have loved, century after century, decade after decade, year after year, day after day, I have loved them, I have poured my love into them, I have spoken to them and showed them what they should do, and they have rejected me at every point. He could have looked at our sin and our wretchedness 
He could have looked at how vile we are, how we treat each other, how we show each other hatred, how we do not respond to his love. He could have looked at all of that and said, it's not worth it. Why? Why would I send my son for those people? But he doesn't. In spite of all of that, in spite of our wickedness and our wretchedness, God does not stop. He does not change his mind. He does not change Christ's mission. And Christ goes to the cross and he dies for us. He says, hold fast to our confession. Let us draw with confidence near the throne of grace. Friends, a lot of people don't like this. They don't like this message. Maybe you don't like this message. That's fine. I don't care. It's messy. It's bloody. It's about, people. It's about Jesus dying. It's about God letting his son die. It's, it's not pretty. And yet, isn't that the fitting story? Because when we look at our lives... When we look at our sin, when we look at our hatred, it's not pretty. When we look at the wars that, we, that go on in our world, when we look at the fact that there are people around our world who are starving, when we look at the fact that there are people who walk into malls and shoot each other or walk into college campuses and shoot each other, it is not pretty. When we see that people get cancer and get AIDS and they die, it is not pretty. It's ugly. So wouldn't it make sense that it is an ugly story of suffering and temptation and death that offers us life? Because through Christ, hate is replaced with love. Through Christ, death is replaced with light. Through Christ, darkness is replaced with light. It took going through the mess going through the stuff that we've messed up, living in this world with this falling, fall, fallen, decaying body and overcoming all of that. The writer of Hebrews says that he faced everything that we did. All of it. The suffering, the temptation, all of it. Yet, without sin. Friends, this is how we have life. You can go find another church with another preacher that'll tell you there's life to be found in this, that, or the other, that you can have hope in your money or in your cars, that you can have hope if you're a good person, and all of that junk, and it will not work. There's hope to only be found in Christ. And he's paid it all. He's done it all. He's served as priest. He made the sacrifice and it was himself. And in it this morning, he offers you life. We hold fast to our confidence and we draw near to the throne of grace. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we are so grateful. that you sent your son to die for us. In spite of our wickedness, you sent him to face the temptation, to face the suffering, to face the heartache, You sent him to die on our behalf. Lord God, as we gather this morning, God, the fact that you have passed far beyond a veil, 
You pass through the heavens. You stand ready. Ready to offer us forgiveness. Ready to offer us hope. God, I know there are those here this morning that don't know you. God, they've never put their trust in you and they've never, God, just, they've never believed. They've never went to you in prayer and cried out that you would save them. God, I pray they would this morning. There's no day like today. God, I pray that you speak to hearts. Lord God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for what you've done and what you're going to do. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand with me as we get ready to sing. I want to encourage you with this. Do you know what my takeaway is from this passage? There's a bunch of theological issues and and it's rich with theology. But do you know the practical takeaway from this passage? Is that we, as believers in Christ should live boldly. We should live boldly. that's, That's what he means when he wants us to hold fast to the confidence we have. We should live boldly. Most of us live mediocre lives. Very mediocre. And he calls on us as believers to live boldly because Christ has died for us and given us life in him. He calls us to live boldly as we're obedient, to live boldly as we're praying, as we're sharing the gospel. He calls us to live boldly. That's the response to this word. You know, most of the time I would say your response is what God tells you in your heart. That's what he says in his word. The response to this passage is to live boldly in him. Would you respond to that? Maybe not as we're singing right now, but as you go out those doors, would you respond by living boldly? I think it's what God's calling us to do.